One of the things that we've invested in this year, now that we're able to, is we bring every single new hire to our headquarters in Chicago, wherever they sit in the world, for onboarding. So we bring everybody here for a week. It's expensive. It costs a lot of money. But there are people who started pre-pandemic who started at Active Campaign who've never been back to Chicago since they started. But they spent one week in Chicago at the very beginning and they still talk about it. They still talk about like how cool it was and how they got to meet all these people and this experience in the city. And that's really special. And you can't recreate that on a Zoom call. Hey, Kelly, great to have you on the show. Hi, Ricky and Sean. Great to be here. Awesome. Hey, Kelly, can you take us through your uh, journey? How did you get into tech? Yeah, absolutely. My journey into tech was a bit by happenstance, actually. I worked for a nonprofit 10 years ago. And at the time, the nonprofit was a customer of Constant Contacts. And I was using my job at the nonprofit was to use Constant Contact to send out email newsletters and event stuff and donation campaigns, fundraising campaigns. And I went to a training to learn how to use it better because Constant Contacts headquarters happened to be down the street from where I was working outside of Boston. And I met their like director of training and he was like, hey, you're doing some really interesting stuff. We're hiring somebody. Would you be interested? And a few months later, there I was teaching other people how to do what they taught me how to do, which is really fun. So then and ever since I've been in MarTech for the last 15 years. So it was really I stumbled into it, I think, especially at that time. Most of us didn't know what working in tech meant if you weren't an engineer. Mm-hmm. And I certainly wasn't an engineer. My degrees in <laughs> communications and public relations. I thought tech was the scary thing over here that I would never get involved in. And then I ended up doing customer facing work for the last almost 15 years. And it's been a really fun journey, kind of constant contact, email, mar- very basic, like email marketing, teeny tiny, small business customers, a bunch of nonprofits. To HubSpot, where we did mid-market and going up into enterprise, I got to live through the HubSpot IPO, which was really interesting. And then ActiveCampaign, which sits a little bit in the middle of those two things, both small customers and some bigger customers as well. But always teaching small and medium-sized businesses how to do marketing, specifically to do like email marketing, social media marketing, and then use a CRM for good and not evil when it comes to having customer data. So very cool. I want to come back to Active Campaign, and I want to obviously yep. pick your brain on the marketing for SMBs. But going back to HubSpot, Kaylee, what was the biggest takeaway from your time there? It's so hard to pick just one. I think the thing I appreciated the most about HubSpot was how collaborative of a company it was. It didn't matter where you sat on the totem pole. You could be an individual contributor And you could have an idea that propelled the business to the next stage of something and you would be able to be directly involved in that idea from start to finish. So I think this ownership mentality of solving for the customer at HubSpot was my biggest Mm. takeaway. Are we doing something? I tell that to my team all the time now when they're like, hey, do you think we should do this thing? And I say, is it going to make the customer experience better? Is it going to be beneficial for the customer? Then my answer is going to be yes. 99.9% of the time, that 0.1% of the time is probably when you tell me it's also going to cost us a few million dollars to do it. Then I might ask more questions about it. But just that ownership of solving for the customer is the thing that really has been deeply ingrained in me since my time there. 
Kelly, a lot of what you've said resonates with me. I think Ricky's probably sitting there going, we should get you to train Sean on how to use a CRM. <laughs> I'm very bad at it. But like this whole concept of strategic programs I find really intriguing. What's the standard you know, day or week fit for you and your team? Like, what do you focus on and what do you do? Because I'm really intrigued by, by this as, a, as an area to run inside a business. Yeah, I think when you, so when I think of Active Campaign, we're an 800 person company. We've got 160,000 plus customers. There's a lot going on. There's a lot to do. And we have to think of different ways to reach our customers, to engage them, to scale our business as well. So when I think about the strategic part of my role, one of the things that we did this year as a strategic program that I led is we opened an office in Costa Rica. Uh, and we did that because we knew we needed to have a lower cost market where we could build and scale a team. And we didn't want to go all in on outsourcing. Outsourcing, like you can do it really well. It's very possible to do outsourcing. A lot of companies in our space do that and they do it well. And we also have an outsourcing partner, but we wanted to think about how do we keep this in-house in a cost-effective way? So in January of this year, we said, we're going to hire... 300 people in Costa Rica in the next three years. By May, we had our first hiring class of about 20 folks. We have about 60 people now in the region. We officially have a legal entity. And actually, in two weeks, I'll be down in Costa Rica and we'll be celebrating the opening of a, an office space that we designed and built for our team down in Costa Rica. What Costa Rica will allow us to do is to build the team of both customer-facing folks, but also our engineering team to help scale the product and help scale our support as well. So huge initiative, tons of moving pieces, legal, finance, recruiting, learning just like how a government in another country works and how you set up an entity. It's our our fifth country that we've entered as a formal entity, but a little bit different. We're focusing a little bit different. We've always gone sales-led before. Here, we're going customer and engineering-led. So it was a bit of a different motion for us. But we did it in record time. Everybody told us, like, you can't do this in less than a year. A year is, like, standard. There's no way you're doing this. We filed our entity paperwork in March. We closed on the entity mid-October. So it is possible if somebody out there asks you to do it in a place like Costa Rica where they have, they're looking to bring more businesses into the country. They have an incredibly talented and educated workforce. And it's been really fun to see that strategic project follow all the way through. And we'll continue to build that office and our staff there for the next couple of years. I love that. Like having a team dedicated to driving out big strategic initiatives and making sure you go from start to finish and bring everyone in on the journey as you're going along. Mm -hmm. I think that's really cool and something we probably should have done back in the day. And then obviously that means you've gone and building teams in other regions and like I said, active campaigns in multiple countries. How do you look at that? I think one of the things I enjoyed and Ricky probably think we enjoyed the most is building that you know, teams in all these different countries and then having to bring them on the journey and make sure that they're getting a very similar feel and, and experience as everyone else is getting. Like, have you got any tips and tricks that you've used as you've scaled up all these different countries across the world? Yeah, definitely. Active Humane has customers in 170 countries. So we knew that we couldn't serve everyone from one country. That was never yeah. going to happen. So we have just this massive presence of customers globally. And that happened mostly organically. It's pretty rare that you see like a U.S.-based tech company who mm. has more than 50% of their customers outside of the U.S. And we do. So it's been really fun, but also challenging because we have to figure out how can we serve all these customers in a way 
that it feels the same, that customers in certain areas of the world don't feel like second class citizens because they're not U.S. based or even European based. I feel like that's where we see the majority of tech companies spending their time. We've thought a lot about where do we put our offices? Dublin and Sydney were no brainers because like you, they're massive tech scenes. I think that they're, they're also great incentives to go to those places. So we started, we actually started with Sydney before Dublin, which was an interesting decision and not one that I think a lot of companies make. I feel like Dublin is the easy thing to do from the U.S. So we started with Sydney as our first international office. Then we did Dublin. Dublin was really focused around language because we just wanted to make sure that we could support outside of English. So we support Spanish, French, Italian, and German from our office in Dublin. And then we had this really big customer base randomly, also organically growing in Brazil. And so we put an office in Brazil which a lot of companies do not do. Brazil is a kind of a hard country to go and put an office in and have an entity. And it took us, actually took us years to build the entity because of how complex it is to do that. But we hired folks as contractors for a few years while we went through that process. And we have a small presence in Colombia as well and now Costa Rica. Every office has been different. The culture of each of those places is different. And we want to make sure that we take active campaigns values and then we also take the country and the culture and the team into account. And while each office has the same look and feel, we have the same values that we live by as a company, it's a little different. When you go, I was just in our Dublin office a couple of months ago and just had such a great time with the team. They have their own traditions, their own cultures. And then also they know the customers in their region much better than somebody sitting in another region does. So we say, hey, what works in Italy might not work in France, might not work in Germany, but we trust you. You own the region. You tell us what resources do you need? Can you do English in this region or do you have to have a language speaker? If you were going to do a language speaker, we need to do it for the entire experience from the sale, the marketing and sales experience all the way to I'm a happy customer, but I have a question I need help with. and I can talk to somebody in language. So really building out that customer journey and then understanding how do we support this differently between on the region? Latin America, for example, super high touch. They want help. They want to talk to you. They want to be able to call you on the phone, send you a WhatsApp message. Some places in Europe, they prefer not to speak to you if they don't have to. So really not making it so that every single region and every role has to act exactly the same, but that there's maybe 70% is the same and 30% we take that variability for the region into consideration and then say, okay, go customize this part of it as long as it still is driving the bottom line for the business of what we're going after, we're happy to offer that flexibility and give those regional teams ownership over their own experience. You map the customer journey and it'll tell you what flex you need in that 30%. If you match the customer journey for every location you go to, you'll find the bits that need to be slightly different. So, and then with the people who are experts in that area, do that customization for you. Yeah, absolutely. Hey, I just want to touch on what you said earlier. A lot of the American companies don't really have too much revenue sitting outside of the U.S. It's very uncommon, right? Mm -hmm. For us, we have to go to the big, the big American pond. So what's been your experience there? How, how do you look after or how do you think of team that leadership composition? Does the exec team and everyone else sits in the U.S. or do you have local leaders? Because that was one of the biggest challenges and rewarding moment that we went through in our journey. Mm -hmm. Thinking about how you're going to do that. So keen, quite keen to hear from you. 
Yeah, we've been on a journey with it, to be completely honest. I don't have the perfect answer. We started where it was like, oh, we'd have a manager in each region. And they were just a senior person. And they assumed that role of the region, but they were super junior in their career. They weren't really thinking about strategically thinking about the region. So then we swung the pendulum so far and we put like a VP in every region. And we said, the region is yours to think about from sales and from success and marketing. But then we didn't give them the resources to do that necessarily. So Mm. we have since like swung back to the middle where we have some type of senior leader. It might be a director. It might be a senior manager in each of the regions. And they assume that I would call it like a site leader role in addition to their day-to-day responsibilities. But our leadership team is not central to the U.S. For example, I have a leadership team um, of directors and senior directors that report into me. And one of them sits in Dublin, one of them sits in Costa Rica, one of them sits in Australia, and then everybody else sits in the U.S. So we've really tried to decentralize the senior leadership at the organization from the U.S. to make sure that we do have a global perspective. Our head of, our head of sales sits in Dublin. He sits there. Him and I work, I probably work more closely with him than anybody at the entire company. We're in lockstep. The time zones obviously create some challenges as as you're sitting on the other side of the world. It's very early for you. It's a little later in the day for me, but we found a way to make it work. Sometimes it's like alternating team meetings per week so that EMEA can join versus APAC. It's hard. It's hard. It's a lot of work Mm. to do it that way. Of course, if you centralize your leadership team, it's more convenient, but I don't think it necessarily is better. I don't think it gives you the view when we have our team is global, our customer base is global. We can't be U.S. centric in every single decision that we make or we're not going to succeed in those other markets. And like I said, they make up over 50 percent of our revenue. So we need to succeed in all of those other markets as well. So I think it's just intentionally thinking about who's sitting where in the world and what influence do they have on the greater strategic plan for the business and making sure they have a voice and a seat at the table. And we make sure that our leaders are relatively mobile. Of course, we had this time of period of time where we couldn't do a ton of traveling. But if you're a senior leader at the business, like you're coming to headquarters or senior leaders are coming to you as a person who has I, I'm one, the one person in the entire company who has team members in every single region and every single office. I'm there physically. I'll be in Costa Rica in a couple of weeks. I'll be in Sydney in February. So really just making that commitment and, and acting with intention when it comes to being one global team and not a U.S. team that then tells everybody else what to do. Hey, we were quite big on that too. Like travel, obviously it's difficult, especially on families mm-hmm. and stuff, but it's something that we truly valued. It was intentional the way we designed our yearly calendar and events and whatnot. It sounds like you're much the same. Why do it though? Because a lot of companies will tell you that, hey, there's better ways to do it. There's hybrid, there's remote, get together once or twice a year. But what is it that's within your values and your mission that allows you to do it and you want to do it? Yeah, probably potentially an unpopular opinion for a lot of folks these days, but there is nothing to substitute in person, in my opinion. There is no way to build relationships and connections in that team bond on a Zoom call. You just can't do it. You can't keep people engaged for a whole day. You can't keep people. People, I think on Zoom, and I'm guilty of this, I'm on Zoom meetings all day, every day. We do a ton of stuff remotely, but people want to come and go. They don't want to 
talk about their lives and get to know people personally. And one of the things that we've invested in this year, now that we're able to, is we bring every single new hire to our headquarters in Chicago, wherever they sit in the world, for onboarding. So we bring everybody here for a week. It's expensive. It costs a lot of money. But there are people who started pre-pandemic who started an active campaign who've never been back to Chicago since they started. But they spent one week in Chicago at the very beginning and they still talk about it. They still talk about like how cool it was and how they got to meet all these people and this experience in the city. And that's really special. And you can't recreate that on a Zoom call. So we've said like, we're all in on remote work, but we are going to make sure we reserve the budget to have people travel when it makes the most sense, to bring people to headquarters, to send leaders out to offices, to reward individual contributors when they do something really great or run an initiative and say, hey, like, why don't you go do this in another office and teach that team? We have an award at Active Campaign called the AC Way Awards. It basically says this is somebody who really displays our values as an organization and they've contributed something outsized to the business. Five people win it every quarter. We give all of those people some cash and we say, hey, you can do something with your team. You can travel to another office. You can, you decide. Here's some money. You decide. It has to be used for active campaign purposes, but you decide how. So some people have used it to bring their team in. Some people have used it to send their team gifts. Some people have traveled individually to another office. But it's really cool to see what people are doing with that money that we give them as a reward. And I think that being between offices, it just is so meaningful and people are so excited. We were in Brazil back in Q2 and just how happy everyone was that we were there. They were just like, oh, my gosh, thank you for coming. It's not we're not like in a big city in Brazil, so it's not easy to get to. But it's so meaningful for the team to have that FaceTime with leadership that we know that it's important and it's worth doing. So very cool. We love doing it. Do you want to lean on your day-to-day and weekly activity a little bit? Because not often do you get too many global leaders who travel and do the things you're doing, Kylie. So when you're mm-hmm. in, let's say you're in Brazil or Costa Rica, are you intentional about your calendar? Do you drop off all those Zoom meetings? Are you spending the time with the, the team on ground or you're doing a bit of both? Like, how do you structure that? Because I've seen a lot of execs who then actually are still maintaining their usual cadence. But they're yeah. in the spot. They're just in a purpose. conference room in another yeah. country, yeah. right? <laughs> yeah. That's right. Uh, I'm a big proponent of ditching my calendar for the week and making it all about whatever region I'm in. Of course, there are going to be certain things that you have to attend remotely, but I would say 80% of my calendar changes if I'm traveling that week. And it's we go, we meet the team. I do a one-on-one with every single leader that's in the region while I'm there. I will do team meetings. So instead of Depending on the region, some of the regions are small enough that I could just meet with everybody individually, but if most of them are not, then what I'll do is I'll say, cool, we're going to do team meetings. So I'll spend an hour with every single team and it'll be super casual. It'll just be a and a and be like, hey, what's on your mind? What are you curious about? The business, the team, me, I don't, somebody else, I don't care. Just ask me whatever you want to ask me in this really casual environment. And some of the best ideas we've had for the org have come from those conversations because people let their guards down. They, they share ideas. And then we always do like a fireside chat with the entire office. So whoever, whatever leaders are in town, we're like, hey, we're here. Let's just let's go for it. We did one in Dublin back in September. It was it lasted it was scheduled for one hour. 
we did a happy hour immediately following it. It lasted for two and a half hours. And we sat there through the whole time. We said, "What? until you're done, we'll sit here and answer questions. And I think that means so much to people. And then we always do something fun and socially. Like it's, it's a sporting event. It's a happy hour. It's a dinner. Like whatever it may be, we always make sure that there's some social activity that every single person in the region is invited to attend. Now they can decide if they want to attend or not. Yeah. But just making sure that there's that opportunity. And then... In our regions, much like in the U.S., like not everybody lives next to an office and can get there. We make sure that at least once a year we'll have that budget to bring them in. So like in Australia, for example, we've got somebody in the Gold Coast. We've got somebody in Melbourne fly in to Sydney for a few nights and join all of this so that they really have the opportunity to participate, even though they're technically a remote employee. Very similar to what we would do back in the day. Yeah, yeah. Bring at least yeah. once, twice a year, if we could, we'd get everyone together because, it's like I said, it's powerful. Yeah, I think it's unpopular if you say everyone has to come into the office every day, but I think sure. people still get that getting together is super powerful and people still want it. I, yeah. I mean, I've not met many people who are like, no, I don't want to fly into the office and hang out with you for a week and do cool stuff and go out for a beer. I think yeah. that stuff is still, is still really important. I agree. Yeah. Even like people who like signed up for a remote, all remote job mm. are still like, wait, when do I get to come? to the office like when do I get to do the thing in person and so I think it's, it's really meaningful and I think it's also like helpful in creating culture because it's really hard to create culture on zoom or google meets yeah 100% you mentioned about fireside chats and you were really transparent by sounds of things as a business as a senior leader have you been perhaps too transparent at times and what lessons have you learned if that's ever been done I don't believe in being too transparent I think that with the right disclosure of, hey, this is maybe this is not a fully formed thought, but maybe we would do this or maybe we would do that. And I think that's actually something I also took with me from HubSpot, the most transparent company I've ever worked at. Active Campaign is not a public company. It's a private company. So we can be more liberal with what we share versus don't share. I've always taken that with me. To me, I approach everything with I'll be as transparent as I possibly can be with the caveat that like, I might say we have intentions to do this thing that doesn't eventually come to fruition because of budget, because of prior shifting priorities or whatever it may be. My team knows me pretty well to say, hey, well, what do you think of this? And I'll give them my opinion or I'll give them the information that I have that I'm able to. There have certainly been times where I've said things and people are like, you said this. And I said, I didn't promise <laughs> I just said that. I didn't, I didn't make any promises. And I think just resetting expectations for people is really important, right? Like, hey, yeah, you're right. I did say that. These three things have changed in the business since I said that, which led us to go to this decision. I think that most people with the right context are really grateful for the information versus not sharing enough. And then people are surprised by things. We did a massive reorg and on our customer facing teams in Q2 of this year. And for three months leading up to it, weekly, every other week, I would talk about it. I talked about these are the things we're striving towards. This is what we're going to do. So when we actually went and hit the execute button and changed everything, people were like, oh, yeah, obviously we knew this was coming. You've been talking about it for months. And it just helps so much with change management when you're able mm -hmm. to do that, that I'm a big proponent of just be transparent. Tell people what you're able to, of course, depending on the business and public or not public or going through a round of funding or not, you can you have to keep some things close to the chest. But I try to share as much as I can because I find that makes people feel like they have more ownership and they are more motivated to go contribute to those things. I love that. That's good advice. Be transparent all the time. 
there are going to be times when you're transferring amount of stuff and then it changes because business is yeah. a moving machine, right? It doesn't just stay and go on a line. Then explain yeah. why. It's people are generally mm-hmm. okay if you can have the discussion and be like, yeah, I'm sorry, this decision has changed. This is why it's changed. No yeah. one likes when people get let go or other stuff. But if you have to do a big round of cuts and it happens, every business has gone through it, explain it, mm-hmm. discuss it. People are smarter than we give them credit for. They can understand and, and consume this stuff. It's going on all over the world. I think, yeah. I think that's something we've learned. We were always really probably too transparent in, in what we did. We, we do the same things like you guys, long fireside chats, open yeah. forum discussions with the executives. Yeah. We could ask them whatever you wanted and, and criticize. And that stuff, they did. They led, led to some of the best things we ever did. The key is you've got to be able to explain. And that's where I've seen it go wrong is where people then don't get called out for something that's changed. And has a legitimate reason, but there's no conversation about, it's just like, it's not, that's not what's happening now. Yeah. And I am a firm believer that if I, as a leader, cannot explain the why, I shouldn't be Mm. doing something. There's no reason for me to execute on something if I can't tell you why we're executing on that specific thing. I welcome that being challenged by my team. I tell them all the time, hey, if you're wondering what's going on and something doesn't make sense, just ask me, hold me accountable to explaining the why on something. Sometimes we're all just moving so fast that you try to skim past it. But I don't operate in a because I said so mode, right? That's not a why. That's not a reason that people care about that's going to motivate people. So I think it's really around also letting, telling your team, hold me accountable, ask me questions, challenge me on this stuff so that if I am moving too fast, I take a beat and I think, wait a minute, why am I doing like, why did I ask for this to happen? If I can't explain it, full stop. We shouldn't be doing it. And I'll take a hint and then I'll ask you another why question. You said that you were super successful as a sales-led motion business, Kelly. And then you've gone into Costa Rica as a customer growth lead, if I picked up correctly. Why such a switch? Because that's a mega switch, right? If you've had prior success, everything's catered and everyone's, everything's set up for that. Why change and why change now? Yeah. And it's not, we didn't necessarily, we didn't take sales out of any of those other regions. We just had always started with sales. And I think it's easy to start with sales, right? Because it's, oh, of course you need to go drum up business before you put customer team there. So the reason we went to Costa Rica with the customer teams first is because one, that's the talent. That's, there's a ton of great customer facing talent in Costa Rica. We already had a sales presence in Latin America, both in Brazil and Colombia. So we had both Spanish and Portuguese covered. But we are really looking at like, where is a place where we can serve globally because there's high English proficiency, but also we can serve Spanish and a number of other languages outside of Costa Rica. And then we said, if we have a need to scale our sales team long term and we're unable to do it in Colombia or Brazil, maybe then we would put some folks in Costa Rica. But we already had that. So it was a little bit of a just a different motion The real difference is we're also putting engineering there and we've never put engineering anywhere else. It's always been U.S. centric. We have a couple of people in Dublin just for the last year, but everything else was U.S. centric, which imagine you're in APAC and something happens. There is an outage. You need help. But like the customer facing folks can't fix it because it's an engineering issue. You've got to wait a day before you're going to hear any update. And we know that's just not the experience we want to have. We're putting engineers in Costa Rica. We're talking about putting more engineers elsewhere in the world as well. Um, So really focused on the holistic customer experience when we think about Costa Rica and not just like, how do we sell more software subscriptions in this region? But hey, we already sold a ton of software subscriptions here. Like now let's make sure they have the support that they really need. That makes sense. Hey, 
Active campaign, obviously, yeah, super powerful engine for marketing to SMBs and stuff. You mentioned about that. A lot of people mm-hmm. listening to this show, we also have a bit of a trade following given what we've done in the past, Kelly. And then marketing is always one thing that a lot of people don't give much attention to, including the early stage founders. What mm-hmm. are your tips there? Like, why should you actually care? Where should you start? How can you and the team at Active Campaign help? Yeah. One of the things I'm really passionate about with Active Campaign is our mission. And our mission is that we help small teams power big businesses. There are teams out there that are two people, three people, five people who run multi million dollar businesses that are really successful. Um, and the way that they do that is through tools that help them. And I think that my biggest piece of advice, especially if you're somebody who is an expert in your craft or in your trade, mm-hmm. marketing is probably could potentially not be your thing, right? You could be like, oh, I don't really care about marketing. I just want to go do this very specific thing that I am excellent at. And that's fair. And that makes sense. And that's where I think it makes sense to invest in tools that will help you not spend the majority of your time doing that. So if I'm starting out as I have a small business and I'm like, okay, I really think I need to start dabbling in marketing. The first thing I would do is have a website. It's 2023. Building a website is actually quite simple. Go to Squarespace, go to GoDaddy, go wherever you want to go and build a lightweight website so that when people are looking for your service, they can find you and then start collecting opt-in contacts so you can then engage with those contacts, whether it's an email newsletter, whether it's an engagement series of multiple emails, whether it's social media or Google ads, like you can do so much. There is so much power in using the right tools and you can do it once the setup is a bit of a lift, but once you get there, you can start automating so much stuff. And that's the power of Active Campaign too, is I can go in and I can say, hey, like, I want every time somebody fills out a form on my website, I want to send them this piece of content. And then I want to follow up with them four days later. And then nine days later, you don't have to go send the email four days later. You can just set it up and it'll just happen for you. So I think it's really like doing the fundamental things, having a website, having going and claiming your social media handles, stuff like that. But then also collecting information about your customers so that you can start to automate that engagement with them. Because you want to stay top of mind. You don't want to be, you know, a one-time, somebody have somebody as a one-time customer. You want to have somebody as a recurring customer, whether you're selling software, whether you're selling baked goods, or whether you're an electrician. You want those customers to keep coming back for more. So you have to find a way to be top of mind and engage them all the time. Sean's sitting there going, wow, you can actually schedule send an email. Can that be done? Things can, yeah. these things that exist. <laughs> We'll talk about this. This yeah, whole like central email thing. <laughs> what is this? What are we talking about? So Sean's getting big into LinkedIn now. So he's putting yeah. out his profile. He's, he's talking loud now. More on looking back going, so you used to say you worked really long hours, but really you just scheduled emails to go <laughs> different to life. <laughs> hey, chats are live, man. Chats are always live. <laughs> hey, one of the other topics that I'm really interested in at the moment is planning, budget planning. 2024 is around the corner. So much has changed in the last 12, yes. 18 months, perhaps even two years. Kelly, how are you and the team at Active Campaign thinking about 2024? And what are the golden rules? Where are you being flexible? What are you doing differently than you've ever done in the past? Yeah, I man, the landscape has changed a lot in the last couple of years, especially for SaaS. It is, I think we 
have gone through these ebbs and flows over the last decade or so in SaaS, but nothing has quite felt like the last 18 months, 24 months. And I think that's what we're keeping top of mind is we used to just be always growing, building, growing, building, growing, scaling. And we're actually taking a step back this year and trying to get back to building and saying, okay, let's look at what we have, right? We have a pretty decent sized company. We've got a lot of revenue. We've got a lot of customers. What does the company, what do our customers need from us? What do they need us to build? And ultimately, I think it's stability. It's it's something that makes their life easier, that's easier to use, that's faster to use, that is easy to see the value from. So we're really focusing on how can we almost get back to foundational stuff in 2024? There's obviously some innovation that needs to always be happening in tech. But if your foundational stuff isn't working, the innovation stuff doesn't matter at all. So we're really taking a step back and saying, hey, what's growth look like in 2024 from a conservative standpoint all the way to an aggressive standpoint? And what resources are we going to need to deploy depending on the outcome that we're looking to get? And where can we get more efficient in that process? And efficiency not always meaning people, but like tools as well. Where are we like creating more steps for ourselves than we need to? So we're taking a good hard look at how we do everything internally, the systems we use, the teams we have, and how do we make everything work for us more efficiently so we can get back into that like high growth stage of SaaS that we all love, right? We all, that's when it's super fun. Yeah. And the market's made that really hard the last couple of years. So we're just taking a step back and saying, hey, let's be really realistic about what we think we can do and what the different paths are to get there and then invest really intentionally in those things and go all in. Instead of doing 20 things in 2024, let's do five, but let's do them exceptionally well so that we can measure the impact and the ROI on those five things, knowing we have these other levers we can pull if we need to. But instead of executing pretty good on 20 things, let's just absolutely nail five things and see what results we can get from that. That makes sense. Reduce the laundry list. And on the flip side, what are you most excited about? for 2024, personally and professionally? I think 2024 is going to be a really fun year. I think like we're starting to see some change in the market. I think that we're starting also to see consumers like get to a level of savvy we've never seen before. And AI is starting to play this huge role. And I'm just morbidly curious about what happens with AI, right? There's a part of me that's like a little bit too iRobot scared about <laughs> like what's AI going to look like at the end of 2024. And then there's another part of me that is just so incredibly excited for how meaningful this can be, especially for small businesses, if we have all of these tools that can and automate this stuff that we've never been able to automate in the past. Like we can automate sending emails, but now can we automate writing the copy for those emails that's going to perform the best or testing things for social media posts that's going to perform the best? So I think that AI is probably the thing that I'm most interested in and excited about to see how that and I'm not a tech person, like I'm not an engineer, like I'm not a, I have no idea how it works, how these like large language model works, anything like this. But what I know is that it can be really powerful and it can help a lot of people be more efficient in their day to day, their businesses grow, their businesses succeed. So I think that's probably my most excited thing for professionally. 
Personally, one great benefit at Active Campaign is every five years you get a sabbatical. And I'll be taking my sabbatical in February of next year. It's four weeks off paid, plus you get a little fun little bonus stipend to spend on your sabbatical. So I'm going to go spend four weeks in Southeast Asia. And I'm just really excited to, for probably the first time in my professional career, to just take four weeks and disconnect <laughs> and reset and say, hey, what's really important to me? What am I excited to come back to? And I think it's just a really incredible benefit that we have. And my team is pretty tenured. So I've got a director on his right now. I have another person taking theirs in January. And everybody's come back just so refreshed and excited to jump back into it. So I'm personally just super excited for a little bit of a break, but also maybe some inspiration. That's very, that's a very good pick. I love it. That's yeah. a good idea. Yeah. I say I'm so much older than you. So I think about Terminator, not I Rebel. Uh, <laughs> Both good movies. Um, Fair, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Hey, so we can move to quick fire round, Kelly. No IR. You can't get to shut that tab down. No, no cheating here. Whatever c- comes to mind first. Favorite sports team? The Michigan State Spartans basketball team. Oh, yeah. the college oh. sports. Yeah, yeah. I only know that through March Madness, so that's what we meant. Yeah, um, yeah it's very relatable globally, March Madness, right? Yeah. Oh, I know. It's huge. huge. Yeah. I know from NBA 2K. <laughs> Is it in there? Oh, in some of them, yeah. You start in college. So. You can pick oh, the, right. that team. I just like the little helmet, mm-hmm. so I've always picked it. Nice. Uh, what about favorite music type? What do you listen to? What's what's on your playlist? Uh, I'm a pop girl. I'm a Swift. I'll, I'm just going to admit I'm a Swifty. Uh, I'm definitely a big <laughs> Swifty. I've seen Eras Tour twice, uh, and I'm definitely trying to make it a third sometime before the end of 2024. Nice. They're hard to get. They get sold out within minutes. She's not they even coming hard, out yeah. of here. She's only coming to Australia. She's coming out of here. She's coming to Australia. Yeah. <laughs> She'll be in Sydney pretty soon. Yeah. Exactly. <laughs> um, can't be iMovie or Terminator. We, what do you figure that out? Um, movie of all time. Of all time. That's hard. You know what? I'm going to go Mean Girls. And I can't believe it came out 20 years ago because I think that it feels <laughs> like yesterday to me. Um, yeah. But Mean Girls, from the first time I ever saw it, excellent movie, in my opinion. Yeah. Lorraine was watching it with our daughter the other day. Classic. What about favorite place to visit? You've obviously got this big, exciting trip lined up to Southeast Asia. Is that's always been your bucket list item? But is there another place that you want to get to, or you've been to? Yeah, I've been very fortunate, and I have traveled quite a bit, both personally and professionally. I just love going somewhere new. So there are places mm-hmm. I've been that I I would absolutely go back to, but I'm always trying to go somewhere new. And after Southeast Asia, high on my list is Patagonia in South America. So that'll probably be my next yeah. big trip after after my time in Southeast Asia this winter. Nice. Awesome. And this is the big one, Kelly. This is what you've got to get right. There's no right or wrong. There is definitely a There's wrong answer. There's 100% a wrong answer. <laughs> 100% a wrong answer. Peanut butter. How do you like yours? Crunchy? Or smooth. Or smooth. Don't give me that. Smooth. No. <laughs> We're getting on so well. <laughs> We're getting on so well. Sorry. I tried. We tried. Just, Just when you're in Southeast Asia, whatever you do not ask for smooth peanut butter, they'll be very disappointed. Okay, I won't. But I would say I'd take crunchy peanut butter over Vegemite, though. So I don't know about oh, that. Oh, really? <laughs> Gonna start a war now. I love Vegemite. Hey, anyway, thanks for coming on, Kelly. This has been fun. Thanks yeah. for sharing all your insights and wish you all the best for 2024 and what's to come. Yeah, thank you so much for having me.